Well, good morning. And Bill said that Karen lectured me about this thing. She just really, really does have a heart for it. It's amazing. And that's a good word. Good word to lecture. Yeah, yeah. I can take that. That's not a problem. As we, as we come to the Word of God, Matthew 16, this morning. Let's pray. Our God, we know that, that the sin into which we were born affects the way we think and see and act. So please help us now to see and know your word and have the courage to act on it. We ask this in our Savior's name and for his sake. Amen. Matthew 16, I'll begin with verse 13. This is the word of God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of a living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, this word church is a word that we've heard all our lives. Basically, it's, it's clearly a religious word. It's not the kind of word that you just use in everyday conversation for other reasons like chair or table or even lectern. It's a specifically religious word, and it's that, but it wasn't always that. Uh, the word that the Lord used here, well, at least Matthew writes to us in Greek, or back oh, three or four hundred years before the Lord uh, walked on this earth, in classical Greek, it was a, a word that referred to the, to the gathering of an army. They would use this particular word in, in talking about assembling the army together. And then over the centuries, the word changed in meaning. Uh, the rest of the New Testament, really beginning from this particular use of the word, tells us a great deal about what the word came to mean. But especially the meaning that our Lord invested it with. The meaning that... Uh, is why we use it the way we do. Now, beginning at this particular verse, especially this particular text where the Lord says, I will build my church. 
The Lord has a great deal for us to know and understand about ourselves and about what he's called us to be doing. So that's that's the task before us is to discover the meaning of this word as the Lord uses it here and to begin to see some of the richness of it as he as we use it in our own lives and as we understand what he's called us to do. All right. I will build my church. First point. This is a four pointer. First point. Jesus is the builder. Okay, the builder of the church is Jesus. Now, look at the way the Lord teaches it. The teaching technique here is really, really wonderful to see. Jesus starts off with him in these verses I just read, but he says, look, who's everybody else say that I am? Okay, and they they entertain all these different ideas. And then he says, "Okay, but now, wait a minute. Who do you say that I am? Now, you you can almost see the the gears turning and the wheels turning in Peter's mind, can't you? He's he's clearly been thinking about this. This is about two years into their association, Peter and the Lord. He's got Jesus has about one more year to go. And Peter has seen and heard a great deal. And what the Lord is a, is a great teacher does is he, he confronts them with all they've seen and all they've heard. He says, all right, now put this together. What do you have? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's seen all the miracles. He's seen the demons being driven out. He's seen all this great teaching. He's seen the Lord calm a storm. He's seen the Lord walk on the water. Ah, okay. Putting that all together. You are the Christ, the son of a living God. All right. That's that's where he begins then. And then the Lord says, well, let's look at what Peter says first. Peter says, Messiah, the Christ. Christ is just Greek version of Messiah, which is Hebrew version of the anointed king. The anointed king was to come. The expectation that this king would would come, that God anointed him. The one who would come to deliver his people. And again, the scripture is full of references to deliverance of Moses leading the people out of Egypt, out of that slavery, out of that bondage. And this Messiah is going to be one greater than Moses. Hadn't, for example, Peter, whether he was actually there or not, had he not heard of the anointing of Jesus to be the Messiah? You remember the baptism? Wasn't that really God saying, yep, this is the one. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Father, son, Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. They're all there. It's a Trinitarian work declaring Jesus the Messiah, the one who's to come to deliver his people. And then he calls him the son of the living God. Now, those particular words that first come out of Peter's mouth uh, or the disciples mouths anyway, when when Peter attempted to imitate the Lord by walking on water back in Matthew 14. And he's and and they get back into the boat and they look around and they go, ah, you are the son of the living God. 
Now, these two particular titles, they don't really get the full implications of them until much later. And really, the book of Acts shows us this. They're, they're getting it. They're putting it all together. We are slow to learn, aren't we? But this is what the Lord would teach them. And the Lord uses this Peter's confession here to remind them and, and pull things together. So what about the church then? What do we have at this point about the church? When Jesus says, my church, whatever the church is, we know that it's not some kind of man-imagined organization. That something else is going on here when this one, the Son of the living God, says it's my church. It's something that belongs to Him. It belongs to Him who is indeed the source of all life. The living God. The one in whom life truly is and truly dwells. In other words, the picture is God's anointed king leading his people to life itself. The anointed king coming for his people. That's the first point. Jesus, this Jesus, is the builder of his church. Secondly, Jesus is the one who builds. Okay? First point was to focus on who this who this one is and now what he does. Now now look at this building metaphor for a second, this image that the that the Lord calls our attention to. He's making a church very much like one builds a house, builds a building. He makes the measurements. He knows the building codes. He knows the regulations. He follows them. He erects the walls. He's the one who puts it all together. Now, obviously, as we'll see in more detail in a second, they're, they're, the human beings are involved in this whole thing. Yet this again, it's a spiritual work that Jesus builds as he puts his church together. He is the master builder of this, his church. Now, Peter, speaking on behalf of the twelve now, has just made this declaration. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay. And look at verse 17. What's Jesus response to what Peter just said? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Many people have seen all these things that Peter has seen. Many people have heard all these things that the Lord has said, but they didn't come to the same conclusion that Peter came to. And the reason they did not is because the father had not revealed it to him. That's the part of the building that the Lord's doing here. As he reveals his truth, as he cuts through our bad thinking, our sinful thinking, and helps us to see the wonder and the glory of the, of the living God and the Son of God. God graciously had graciously condescended to show this to Peter. Except that the Father had called him, as the Lord says later on, 
and shown him all of these things, they would not have seen. None of these apostles would have understood. That's that's part of what Jesus is doing as he builds his church. Even with two years of experience with him, had it not been for that grace, they wouldn't have seen. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because the fathers revealed it. So with such a Messiah, with such revelation, with such a king leading his people. We know that, therefore, that the church is above all a spiritual work, not just a work of men's hands. Since God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit were all present at the Lord's anointing, we know also that it's ultimately a Trinitarian work. God, the father revealing the son, winning the prize of his people, the Holy Spirit and dwelling and working in us. When we come to Christ, we come because he calls us to himself. And when he calls us to himself, he shapes us and works us into this thing called the church. The church who is the people whom he has purchased with his own blood. Weak building material like you and me. Weak building material whom, by his power, he shapes and builds into his church. And as we think about that, as we think about the implications of all of that, I mean, who are we that God has done this thing? Who are we that he's begun this work in us that he's promised to continue on in us? Such a one who not only saves me from the the terrors of hell by his blood on the cross, but one who has made me one of his own people, who's brought me to himself for his own glory and brought us together in this place for his own glory. As we as we think, just just begin to think about that. What can we do even with that much except praise and serve him? All right, now, Jesus, this one, this king, is the builder. Jesus does the building. The church is a spiritual work as he calls us to himself, as he brings us to to a place and to one another. But there's something else that's important as well. Thirdly, the building is flesh and blood. The building is flesh and blood. Note that phrase there in in verse 17. It's not flesh and blood is revealed as to you, but you are Peter, in effect. And you're the one I'm building now. This is verse 18 has been a little controversial somewhat over this over the centuries, because some views this to to argue that that Peter's the first pope. And I don't think that's what's going on here at all. Rather, Peter is the spokesman of the twelve. Very important men in the life of the church, because it's on these real men that Jesus builds his work. The Lord gives these his apostles the authority to go out and do this work. We see it in the book of Acts, where Peter and the others are the leaders. Now, of course, you know, Judas falls out. So one of the twelve to whom he's speaking here even falls out. But God takes these imperfect sinners and uses them for his own glory to build his own church. The Lord gives the apostles the authority that's needed at this point to build his church. 
It's, it's what we call the apostolic authority of the New Testament. The New Testament rests on this foundation is the word that the Lord has used. And this is where it all begins. This is their commission. Look at verse 19. It gets it, it gets even more interesting, if you will, because the Lord in giving them this authority, part of the authority, he says, is I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Wow. This church whom he's created with this foundation of these apostles have the authority of, of, of preaching and proclaiming the gospel. In that sense, opening up heaven. And have also the authority to care for the souls of God's people. To bring them where they need to be. Now, it's. This is kind of a hard verse, but I think it very at the very least it means that this whole notion of the, the, the keys to preaching and proclaiming the gospel and opening heaven to the people of God. And also of providing that discipline in the church and the structure of his church that he's building, these souls might be cared for and carried along in their, in their Christian lives, ultimately to heaven, saved from hell. One commentator likened this, this, key, this key idea to, to the old custom of, of the rich man would have his storerooms and he would have a porter who was responsible for those storerooms and he carried the keys around to the rooms and he would open them up that the riches of the storerooms might be open to everyone. And that's what the authority of the Lord's given the church to take that and open those storerooms and pour out the wonder and the glory of all all the the riches of Christ himself, even as he bought and purchased us and leads us to heaven. So the, the call to the church then is to go open the storerooms. And show people the riches of God that are there. It's. It's that authority that's apostolic. It's that that God gives Peter and the other apostles at this point. But there's also more to it than that, that we, that we need to really remember that these are real men. That he's given us incredible authority to. They are flesh and blood people. The church is not an abstract theory. Now, we talk about the church universal, and there's a great deal of truth in that. All believers from all times and all places are the church. And that's true, but we can't let that abstract notion detract us from the idea that, yeah, we're really here. We're really doing these things that God has called us to do. And he's called us to do many things. We're a real people called to serve other real people in his church. Uniquely related people, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why that metaphor of the family is so important. We belong to each other in that very real sense. There is a church of all believers from all times, but also real people. And we have to be careful that the abstract idea of the church doesn't lead us away from us here in Lawrence, Kansas, in this place. Now, saying that, it comes to my mind anyway that there are at least two models of the church that we find. Okay, this is still point three, by the way, but these are two models. Okay, 
there's the Air Force model of the church and the Harveyville, Kansas model of the church. Okay. Yeah, right. The Air Force model is this. I grew up as a kid in the Air Force. I was an Air Force dependent. All right. An Air Force brat, as we used to call it. Okay. And our life was really an interesting one. Okay. And our fathers constantly moving about from base to base shaped that life. And it especially shaped that constant moving, especially has shaped our relationships to one another. Fellow Air Force brats. Okay? Because I knew, and I didn't think about this till many years later, I just kind of knew it from experience. I knew that if I wasn't going to be moving next year, my friends would be. Somebody was always moving. They were. Now, the, the strength of this is I can get to know people really easily and really quickly. That's what I learned in the Air Force. You've got to get to know them fast because they ain't going to be here tomorrow. But what does that do to our relationships? Well, if you make a really close friend and that friend leaves, that hurts. There's that pain of involved in that. So the Air Force model means that we form quick relationships, perhaps, but they're rather shallow. We can't really, it's, their friendships are genuine, but they don't go too deep because it's too painful when you break them off. Real friendships. But when it comes right down to it, I'm really kind of my own in a world like that. I'm, I'm kind of an indiv- hyper individual, if you will, in, in that model. And then I learned a second model. Praise God. The Harveyville, Kansas model of the church. Now, I'd love to take a survey to see who's even heard of Harveyville, <laughs> let alone been there. Okay. Harveyville is 300 people, 300 souls maximum. Okay, I don't know if they're really that many. Out southwest of Topeka, about a half an hour, I taught school in that district for 18 years. And as one of my sixth grade students said to me one day, so Mr. Upchurch, you've never lived on a farm. No? Just a city slicker, huh? (laughs) Okay. And and what I caught from all of those wonderful experiences in that place was that I better be careful who I insulted or who I talked about. Because if they weren't related to them, that person I was talking to wasn't related to that person. They were friends of friends of friends. All those people knew each other there in that part corner of Obonsi County. And whenever I run to anybody from Eskridge, I say, hey, well, then do you know somebody from Harveyville? Because they know each other, too. And it's not that they're well, their friendships when there are friendships run deep. And they figured out how to get along with one another because they know that none of them are moving. They better get along with one another. <laughs> OK, so that's the that's the second model. And I think that's the model for the church more like it. That the Lord would have us see that those Harvey Villians really hang in there with one another, even when they don't particularly like each other sometimes. 
they still are there because they know that's where they belong. They're in it for the long haul. They figured out the way to do it. Well, of course, the church is far more than really either of those models. But we have to look out for our mobility and our individuality because they do affect the way we see each other. And what God really calls us to are those in-depth relationships with one another. We, we really do, in spite of the potential pain, because we know we're sinners, need to enter into one another's lives and figure out a way to help and love and serve each other. That's why we read things like James and Paul and John's letters. And he talks about the struggle and the difficulty of living in the church and and the pain that's involved in the sacrifices that we make for one another. But that's what we're called to. And God and his grace, the great master builder, builder, calls us to trust in him with the outcome of all these things. Trust in him with that investment that we'll make and that and the, the authority that we submit to in the church. Because he's, we believe that he's called elders to govern us and to help us into heaven by, by strengthening us and building us. And to be able to trust God even with the outcome of fallible human beings making mistakes about those kinds of things. That's what Christ has called us to as his church. The builder is Jesus. Jesus builds. And his building is flesh and blood. In real place, in a real time, not just a universal abstract. Now, at the second half of verse 18, the Lord changes the metaphor. Look at that. He says, I will build my church. And then he says, what about that church? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The picture shifts. The picture changes. Because now the picture is of a city or of a fortress or maybe even a giant prison with gates. Okay, the gates of hell shall not prevail. The church besieges this fortress, this prison, this castle, as it were, the search church is on the attack where men and women are imprisoned. Note first that the church is on the offense. The church is not just passively sitting back behind the walls. No, the walls are Satan's. The walls are the walls of hell. The gates are the gates of hell that the church attacks. Satan defends his realm and the church attacks it. And praise God, notice, too, that the church is unstoppable. The victory is indeed ours. That those gates are going to be knocked down. That those who are imprisoned there have life given to them. Imprisoned by the walls of death surrounding them. The gates are thrown open. And the living God accomplishes his purposes in the lives of those human souls so imprisoned. In other words, the metaphor now shifts to an idea of what the church is. The church is an army. The church is an army on the attack. 
you, you remember Paul's notions of armor. Well, that's part of what's going on here. The, the, in Ephesians 6, where he talks about put on the whole armor of God, that's because we're in an army. We need armor in an army if we're going to do the work that God gives us to do, which is as a spirit indwelled army, properly equipped by that spirit to wage his war, we have the keys to open the riches of life to those imprisoned by death. Pentecost of the Holy Spirit poured out on us to accomplish his good work that God's given us to do. To proclaim the gospel, Matthew 28, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, the Great Commission, and make disciples, teaching them everything I've taught you to do. And the Spirit enables us, us to fight that part of the fight. And the other part of the fight is the war that we fight daily with our own sinful flesh and blood. As we see, even though we're saved and delivered by grace from the from the walls of death, we are still sinners in need of that constant outpouring of his spirit that we might live for him. Because as we as we look at our own nature and as we look at the world around us and we're in this war, we see more and more that indeed we are pilgrims in this world. And we are aliens and strangers in need of the, of the grace of God to live our lives. As we grow to understand better and better the power of death and darkness in our world, we see more and more how much and how badly we need the grace of God in our own lives. Our world's out to destroy us. Our God delivers us. Our world is out to destroy our own souls in the souls of our children and our friends and our nation. It's quite a war that we're against, that we're fighting. Destructive forces like, for example, prosperity. Just to give one. Prosperity that, that would make an idol of wealth and success would destroy us, that idolatry. No, it's a war against all the false gods that surround us. That the world sets up, you know, to, to, to push the, the metaphor one step further, it's like on the walls of this fortress we're assaulting. There's boiling oil being poured out on the people of God as we seek to knock down those walls. The victory is assured, but it's a fight. Now, being a retired army chaplain, I have to push the metaphor a little harder. Do you know even snipers need the rest of the army? Okay. Snipers are these guys who go out and they hide out and wait for the enemy and then pick them off one by one with these high-powered rifles that they have now with scopes on them that really take out the enemy. And so you would think of all people in the army, that's somebody who's by himself doing his job. But he's not by himself doing his job. He depends on that team to give him intelligence about where the army's where the enemy is going to be to supply the bullets to get him to that place in the first place to give him all he needs for the fight he needs the rest of the army as well and of course we do too i trust you're with me on that one we we can't be there's no such thing as a lone sniper and there's no such thing as a lone believer in christ we're in this one together and we need each other desperately that's why we have Covenant groups and prayer groups and 
And that's why we meet with one another to pray and encourage. And that's why we gather on Sunday morning to give glory to this living God that that we as our Lord's army might do the work he's given us to do and that he might have all the glory in us. You know, Paul picks this up and he talks in his letters using the metaphor of the body and how interdependent we are. Well, this army idea is the same kind of thing. And the book of Acts shows us this church in action. And the letters of Paul show us the church in action and show us what we're about and what we're to be. You know, our our American hyper individualism, our mobility can all can those work mightily to cause us to forget that we're not in this by ourselves. And that for our soul's health, like Peter's soul, we're sinners. And so therefore, for our soul's health, we need our king's church. The church of the living God. It's vital to the work our Savior has given the church to accomplish that we're in this together. And he's called us to it. To honor him by opening the storehouse of the good news of salvation in this king alone. This one alone is our salvation. So that's what the Lord does. He says, I will build my church. You see why it's a special word. We're just scratching the surface, really, as we look at what Christ has done and is continuing to do. That's why translators don't really translate it. This is this is they could have translated into other things, words like assembly or gathering or folks together or something like that. And it would have worked, but they were wise enough to say, no, nah, this is a special word because it's got all of this in it. So much wonderful meaning. We in this place are his church, his supernatural work in our midst. This anointed king does the work of taking us sinners and delivering us and rescuing us and building us fully into his people. And as his church, he uses real flesh and blood sinners like you and me to do this good work of opening the storehouses of his riches. And finally, our Savior fashions us into his army to storm the gates of hell and to deliver human souls for whom he died. Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom of God for us, his people. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, our God, for the work you've done for the work you're continuing to do, for the riches of your word that you open to us. Give us courage and grace to serve you well. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.